the beautiful thing about the Enneagram is that it brings up the stuff you don't want to look at, but then it brings up the stuff you actually don't want to look at. Like there's, <laughs> there's this stuff that you're like, That's oh, good. here's my dirty little secret. And then it's like, yeah, but here's the skeletons you have, you didn't even know you had buried under your house. <laughs> That's really good that, Like maggots That's are feeding point. on. <laughs> Well, I mean, we all know that we're on some level that we're bullshitting ourselves and everybody else. And if we don't know that, then we're really in trouble. And Enneagram at least gives you a way to see it in action. The Big Hormone Enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovich, uh, sexual self-president with five wing, four five eight trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-president sexual nine with one nine seven four trifix. What up? It's Emika. I'm an eight wing seven, sexual self-president with eight five four fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy. I am a self-president social three wing four with a six nine trifix if you like our podcast guys make sure you go like and subscribe us on the apple podcast app and if you really like us you should definitely leave us a review all right so john before you came on we were talking about how people think that health is positive and that uh there's no way a type four could be healthy without balance and positivity playing a role in their perspective right we need to unpack that because I think that's that. that's going to be a big one, an ongoing point of contention. Yes, definitely agree. And and that positivity is often coming from a neurotic stance. You know, so, I mean, we can get into it, but just to kind of preface it before we actually get into it, because uh, it's tricky territory. Yeah. You know, uh, what Emeka was speaking to, like, not to be, I'm not trying to be like woke white guy, but like... Uh, because I become so aware of socialist stuff and like class, as Emika is speaking to, it's like a lot of white people live in a kind of, you know, upper middle class bubble where there isn't a lot of straight talk because it's like, how dare you talk to me like that kind of a quality. And so there's a lot of passive aggression and a lot of glossing over things like that doesn't seem to be true for non-white people so much. And I have a lot to say about that. I yeah, I, I think that'd be a really interesting thing. And again, like, I mean, mm-hmm. I have to navigate, like, I don't want to just be making, as a white guy, just generalizations about racial dynamics. That I don't experience directly. I experience, like, from the white culture, you know, but. Yeah, I can I can say, at least from my perspective, what I've had to um, understand, especially social blind, because I think I probably would have come to understand these things a lot sooner. Um, I mean, I'm 36 and I'm just in the past couple of years fully, really getting a grasp on what I believe is a huge culture clash Yeah, for people who are um, who grew up white in this country versus basically everyone else in the world. And, and it's yeah. And it's even in other cultures, uh, other white cultures. It's not like that. It's not like this. It's very specific to this country. And even within this country geographically there's slight Mm. differences definitely people talk about nines and like being peacemakers and things like that but i've noticed that in enneagram forums that the nines that speak up a lot that have no issue speaking up a lot they tend to be from other countries or they have some international flavor to them 
Yeah, I mean that's that's like speak you know speaking to how I often bring up that nines are not conflict avoidant. Yeah, as a whole, like it can they can internalize a conflict avoidant super ego or whatever their comfort zone is. That's like what gets that's what the nine seeks. But it's not like just conflict itself is what the type avoids. It's like very culturally specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, namaste and welcome <laughs> the Big Hormone Enneagram Podcast. I am one of your hosts. John Lukovich, type four. And I am here with very special other people. <laughs> Hi. Go for it. I'm David, David Gray. I'm, <laughs> I'm, what am I? I'm a nine, nine with a one wing. And I am a crazy Jungian thinker. How about that? Mm. Tasty. <laughs> Juicy. Thank you. Hey, I'm Emika. Um, I'm an eight, and uh, yeah, I'm. I might be responsible for a lot of ruckus that you see on the internet, and uh, that might be all you need to know at this point. Hi, I'm Nancy. I'm a three, and uh, I'm just here to keep the boys in line. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. The dominatrix. The dominatrix. Yes, I have a whip. She has a whip. Okay, so what are we talking about today, guys? Weren't we talking about people being straight with each other? And oh yeah, we're talking about um, positivity, positivity, and the tyranny of positivity. (laughs) Um, Tyranny of American positivity. American 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 positivity. White yes. positivity. So very yeah, specific. What, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Extremely. So what, so if you've heard other, uh, I guess you'd say episodes of us talking, uh, dear listener, um, <laughs> we have talked about not a four, which is both a kind of hashtag and an Instagram account that a movement, a movement that our dear sweet friend Emika here mm-hmm. is uh, gently leading, gently <laughs> and. Um, We've love. all observed how uh, four is the most common mistyping in the Enneagram. And it's not simply that we're interested in getting having people type correctly, but that we've noticed that from this mistyping comes a whole slew of misunderstandings and, and misinterpretations. And it opens up a whole can of worms about uh, the Enneagram and what the Enneagram is and how people use it. And uh, so... And the account that Emika uses, it uh, uses a lot of humor and memes t- to get a point across, but it's interesting to observe for us, at least, uh, the responses that a lot of these sort of, like Emika will post something that's sort of funny and provocative, but it'll also give like a, a lesson about understanding type. And one of the major things that keeps coming up um, in, in response to some of the stuff that's been posted is people insisting that they are a, quote, healthy for, because not all fours are uh, negative all the time, or they've learned to balance their negativity with positivity. And it's kind of a wrong view about what health actually is. So from one point of view, not being stuck and locked in a certain pattern is an indication of health, but that doesn't necessarily, but attitude is not the same thing as health. What health is a measurement of where it's describing when it's used in the context of the Enneagram, that language health and unhealth comes from Don Riso's levels of development, is levels of presence, degrees of presence, and um, how present we are with our psychological type, our, our psychological structure. And when, the more present we are, the less identified we are. So the uh, more unhealthy we are, 
the more we're identified with the patterns of our personality and we have no choice or space in the face of our personality patterns. So in terms of four, what keeps coming up is, oh, I'm an optimistic four, I'm, I'm a healthy four. You can be quite happy and be very unhealthy. And you can be very unhappy and very healthy. And the reason that's so is because we mistake things going well in the personality for health when health is not a matter of personality, it's a matter of presence. Mm-hmm. And presence means the capacity to be present with whatever is emerging. So let's say that we are feeling really miserable, but we're really there, we're really in our grief and suffering. That indicates that we're healthy. Uh, if we're really unhealthy and we're very happy, all it really means is that we're not present, but we are something is going right in terms of the way we want things to happen for our ego agenda, for our personality. So maybe we're getting a lot of positive feedback for um, acting out our personality type. You know, that can vary by type by type by type. But if we're feeling really good about it, it's, it's probably just narcissism at an unhealthy level. Uh, it's still, it's, it looks positive. It can look healthy and great to other people, but this thing about health and unhealth is more of an inner thing. And it's not so much behavioral behavior can change depending on health because you're less compulsive when you're healthier. Uh, but it's not attitude. Attitude is entirely different measurement. So positivity, you would, are you, you're defining as an attitude? Yeah. Feeling positive, feeling like I'm a happy, whatever, a happy person. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of these responses to Emica's post, somebody linked an article from, I guess, the New York Times that was like, people remember negative experiences much more than they remember positive experiences, which is true. Um, and they were using this as an argument to say that I don't actually really know what they were trying to say. The argument doesn't matter. It was just a bunch of rubbish. But she was trying to say that at a healthy level, that uh, and a four would be experiencing both positive and negative, and they wouldn't. It wouldn't be leaning towards the side of negativity if they were healthy. Which it's saying that positivity is the healthier way. She also might have been tone policing, like that's yeah, to definitely. say, that's to say, you know, which is a which is a common nine thing. And so she was saying, you realize what you're doing when you emphasize the negative is your you know, you're doing this. We already have this problem mm-hmm. of, of negativity being what we hold on to or emphasize. So right. why are you doing more of it? What? How would you define tone policing, and why is that a nine thing, David? Because I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Tone policing is um, well. I think nines are sort of in whatever environment they're in, even if it's abstract, such as being online. There's a sense of uh, somehow identifying into the collective mood of the environment. And in, in a way, you almost feel some compulsion to be responsible for just bringing calm into a situation. And you think that, and you're, the superego for type nine thinks that, you know, the reflexive superego response is that no good thing is going to come from any kind of anger, negativity, uh, you know, just irritation, just everybody should vacuum all of that stuff out so that we can have some kind of ease uh, together. 
I was having a discussion with some folks, uh, particularly with a friend of mine who uh, has recently realized that she is a nine rather than a four. Mm. And um, one of the distinctions we are making, and she might be great to have on here eventually because mm-hmm. she's very uh, introspective and, and very aware of, of it's like it's opened up a whole bunch of good stuff for her is recognizing mm. that she's a nine. But one of the one of the distinctions that we were making is that um, in this conversation was was how even though nines will experience themselves as being very inwardly turbulent and chaotic, often, you know, not only do people around them not necessarily experience them that way, mm-hmm. whereas they'll experience a four as very moody and pissy, but also that nines they still they they want to offer that to people. They want to offer something soothing mm-hmm. or calming or uh, healing for other people, even if they experience themselves as very tumultuous inside. Whereas four is not really interested in offering something. The opposite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's the fours like to kind of provoke and and be a little obnoxious. And isn't the superego thing there that you're more likely to get authenticity and truth? Yeah, exactly. You're trying to be real, trying to provoke something to come out, and you're trying to represent something that is trying to be repressed in the collective Mm -hmm. there's there's some interesting uh weird overlaps with nine and four in a a certain way where um i think that there is a kind of attunement to the collective but in like a fragmented way from four like whereas nine has got this holistic kind of view of things four also feels like there's some connection to the whole or the greater Mm -hmm. but like the greater as being empty or uh, like, you know, it's like looking at the perspective of the whole from the void and, and trying to kind of be a voice for that emptiness in the collective somehow, or like represent that sore thumb in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Do fours feel like they, they are in the whole that you're like, you're looking out from the void. I think all fours would relate to this where it feels like there's been some kind of like deep, all-encompassing like on a deeper level of reality like some kind of accident or fall or uh Mm -hmm. like something horrible happened on like a spiritual level and nobody else recognizes it Mm, that's i I have to kind of embody it like reality is really an oil spill that's just like engulfing and and and, um everything it's kind of drawing everything into it and contaminating it nobody else sees it Mm. and then with the five wing, there is a bit more of a, like the same way that five has an emptiness of concepts. It's like everything is sort of full of holes. Is yes. that way I think no. of it? It's like, mm-hmm. like there's nothing substantial. Like even my own ego agenda is not substantial. And it's like, I'm so aware of where things lack or where there's gaps or where there's something not solid all the time. One thing that's interesting in the Enneagram symbol itself is that if you look at the symbol, points four and five are by far the sharpest angle so it's like narrowing down into a very small point right and whereas nine sits atop you know a wholeness right so yeah yeah, that kind of gets at the symbolism and the difference yeah i think what we're, we're speaking to um that is often comes as a later realization for people when they uh get a sense of the Enneagram as types and the dynamics within the types is that the symbol itself is a kind of cosmology or an archetypal mm-hmm. arrangement. And so when you can actually look at the Enneagram, not just as what's type one, like what's type two, like, and you start to see how the relationships around the circle 
are all speaking to something fundamentally uh, true and real and archetypal, but not universal necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, that becomes a whole thing. So yeah, like the gap between four and five like means something. Yep. And in uh, the Gurdjieff Enneagram process, so when Gurdjieff taught the Enneagram, he didn't teach it as a personality system. He taught it as a way processes unfold. And they begin at point nine and they end at point nine in a process where something is most at risk of collapsing, most at risk of, of decaying or falling apart is that gap between four and five, which mm. he called Harnlut, because he made up words based on Armenian and Greek and all this kind of stuff. But it's the point where, uh, and in any, any like real process, not just like some dumb mechanical process, but like, like an inner work process or something, uh, you have to lose sight of the beginning so you can't go back and you have to not you also can't know the end it's like that point of like no orientation that you have to like surrender to faith that's the uh, point at the gap you're saying yeah that's the gap mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's interesting that's that really sounds so you fun you can't go back because you crossed over yeah and you don't have a scent you can't see the other side yet mm-hmm. just like over the the cliff over the suspension bridge between two poles and you can't see either mm-hmm. side yet that's really fascinating. I, I think getting into like what the perspective of four and, and five, what that's supposed to embody for us, I think is a good way to help people understand what, what that type is about. Yeah. And I, and I think there's a, there's a lack of that in the like kind of collective awareness, you know, of like that part of life, what that represents. And uh, there's, you know, we, the tyranny of positivity where it's like things have to be good or working out or on the up, like set back. Oh, we're getting back on the train. You know, it's like, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, like steeping in the non-rational and the not going anywhere kind of feeling. You know, years ago, there was a, a thread in one of these forums that that was kind of interesting. People were talking about, hey, do you notice that there is a difference between comedy in the u.s versus comedy in the uk just humor sure in general in and over in europe for sure hey and versus america and i think one of the things people discovered on that thread is there is at least something that people say about u.s culture or american culture is that this place is unrealistically optimistic most places most other places in the world are pessimistic and so when you look at like um comedy in the, in europe for example people are just far more negative and pessimistic um so it has more of that contrarian like six four line mm-hmm. where there's a tragedy in these jokes that it's okay to just sit in something that's just dark comedy versus here in the states like there's a, a kind of like a three I don't know, three, seven, nine overlay where mm-hmm. you can't, there's a can do-ness about people's uh, expectation of the future, that things are going to work out. And this is a place where you can make things happen and it influences the way we make jokes. And so I've noticed that I had a, you guys met my, my uh, friend who was living here with me, the, my Irish friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a huge thing that we discussed for a long time because he had sort of a culture shock and in a way he helped me figure out what this was um and just our sense of humor as non-americans or originally non-americans was clashing a lot of times with 
uh, American sense of humor, which just doesn't get that negative. And I feel like it's a huge aspect of what's going on in the Enneagram world. It's just this cultural overlay of optimistic positivity that it's very American. You know, I, th- I think because the context of a lot of Enneagram stuff is a sort of self-help view that it is about how to get better. And there is something optimistic in the archetype of self-help because it's like, I'm going to yes. help myself. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, you get into mysticism, which the Enneagram like from self-help can quickly lead to. And not all, not all of it, but a lot of it is, is it, it's about like dying before you die. It's quite like about being completely uh, helpless and powerless to affect anything because you're so trapped in the prison. You know, so there's this sort of, in a sense, similar aim, like a similar orientation, but like completely different view of it. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I've always liked and respected about the Enneagram is there's a lot of typologies and self-help modalities, but I hadn't found anything that at least I guess says a lot about me that I was attracted to this, but it was showing me all the different ways that I sucked. (laughs) All all the things that were holding me or habitual patterns that weren't good. And I mean, I've seen Enneagram descriptions that have tried to put a positive spin on type patterns. Um, But I mean, some of the earliest Enneagram texts are kind of negative, like Naranjo's book the way that he tried to line up right. um, types with these pathologies like they weren't good <laughs> totally that's a good point i think a lot of people that that for them that was an introduction to the enneagram and for me and i was like who else is talking about something so terrible as a personality <laughs> structure like this <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about it but uh yeah that's a good point because like it'll be like oh you're an infj you're the pioneer explorer seer <laughs> yeah you know and it's it's sort of congratulating you and i think that's part of the point just to get people into it is to like flatter them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh enneagram is least effective and least interesting when it's you know we know it from the miserable instagram memes that it just like so boring and useless when it's just congratulating people where they are because i think we all recognize that we're not the way we should be. There's something else about us that needs to be brought into being and that we, as a collectively, we don't know how to do that. Yeah, I was uh, talking with my therapist and she was saying she's learning the Enneagram. She's been through a few trainings and she said the beautiful thing about the Enneagram is that it brings up the stuff you don't want to look at, but then it brings up the stuff you actually don't want to look at like there's (laughs) there's this stuff that you're like oh here's my dirty little secret and then it's like yeah but here's the skeletons you have you didn't even know you had buried under your house (laughs) that's really good like maggots are feeding on (laughs) yeah i've 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 had some experiences over the years just naively thinking that people would be excited about new methods of typing that were more accurate or they would be excited about ways that would help them accurately land on their type and oh like let me help you see this thing that you've been you know because that's where I was thinking oh I was so excited that you could even do this that you could even identify in a very concrete way what someone's type was and I recognized that it was almost like people were being forced to face themselves in a nightmarish kind of way and I've seen people like break down or 
block me and completely <laughs> le- like we're talking about friends for that I've known for years <laughs> that um, through the Enneagram that, you know, once it came down to uh, a typing of them that was spot on and described them, but also in a way just like ruined whatever um, <laughs> idealized fantasy that they had of themselves. It was like a morning. I saw multiple times where people just dropped the Enneagram completely left because of an awakening that happened that they did not want to happen. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like viscerally uncomfortable when you actually learn your type and get into it. It's so not fun. It should be. Yeah. Yeah. Like, definitely. It should be horrifying. Yeah. Because uh, like you're only going to leave your prison if you're horrified by the prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, Most of the time. I was just going to say that's what attracted me to it. I was like, yes, give me all the darkness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> darkness of three. <laughs> yeah, we can we can still do it. Oh yeah, no no doubt. I was really attracted to the idea that you could learn one thing that could completely rearrange your whole self concept, like make you just sit there and think about your entire life for days and weeks. And I was really like the first few years I was into it, I was just peeling back the layers of bullshit that I was thinking about myself and that process of peeling back the layers of your self-delusions is there's something really cool about that oh yeah it completely shocks you well i mean we all know that we're on some level that we're bullshitting ourselves and everybody else and if we don't know that then we're really in trouble Mm -hmm. and enneagram at least gives you a way to see it in action and yeah i mean my attraction as i think i've talked about on here before is like i was fucking horrified thinking i'm unique (laughs) <laughs> to find something that describes my personality completely, like completely accurately, that fucking hundreds of millions of people must. There's a billion also... other unique people. <laughs> yeah, millions of other unique people on the planet. It just Ooh. terrifying. So then it was like, what can be me? It's not just in a book. One thing I found kind of fascinating when I was in the narrative training was how each, each type does this to an extent where they can take the Enneagram and pretend they're doing self like inner work. And like, that can be, that can become their crutch. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. How so? Yeah. So like in the case of like twos, I feel like do it really, they can kind of say, Oh, you know, I'm creating more positivity in myself. I'm doing this inner work to make myself better for these other people. And it just sort of becomes a process where they don't dig any deeper because they don't want to become any more negative. Mm. Mm. Yeah, everybody can use the Enneagram to do a brand new version of your type neurosis. Yeah, and they <laughs> and they lean on the Enneagram as like, no, no, I'm not doing it. So it becomes even harder to kind of get past that because they believe they're doing inner work, but it's not inner work. Right. Because they're doing it in like this positive neurosis. Yeah. So, so yeah, like a, a healthy two is a two that can be really shitty. Uh, yeah. Exactly, it, but also like not like not just be shitty because no one appreciates them, but just like because they're complicated, you know. Yeah, mixed yeah. hearts. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. a good way to put it. Well, would three be uh, using it as a self improvement project? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You can just get sucked on into that and be like, <laughs> oh, I'm working so hard on myself, and like this is my new project, and here's a goal. But like self help never can have a goal. You know, right. <laughs> your work cannot have a goal. It's 
impossible. So the actual inner work is like way more terrifying than the actual three wants to go. Yeah, like framing the outcome limits the outcome. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there isn't always like a positive outcome. Sometimes right. it's just sad as shit. Right. I was going to say some more things about uh, the cultural angle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to think it was just an American thing, but it's also cultural. I think I was, I was saying something earlier, how it is very specific to white culture. Mm-hmm. And even within white culture, there's, there's some variation between like East Coast <laughs> versus West Coast. I'm in the Midwest. So this is like the epicenter. The yeah, the epicenter of passive aggressiveness and i've just learned in the past two years what is what it's what is going on so i was part of the show <laughs> you guys you guys know that i was part of the show called easy on netflix and yeah it's it's a great time capsule of what i'm talking about uh, and i started calling this thing i call it the easy syndrome <laughs> because because the show if you've ever watched the show then you know what i'm saying it, to me i always my experience of the show when I first watched it was this show's annoying and I didn't really know what why it was annoying because it's very well done. It's very authentic to this part of the world. But I started to realize that it's annoying because I don't understand why people don't actually say what they mean. A lot of the show is people talking around each other and there's a lot of passive aggressiveness um, from my perspective where let's say a couple is having a fight or an argument It starts off with this indirectness, you know, passive aggressiveness, that if another couple from another culture, a black couple or a Mexican or whatever, were having a similar fight and things like that were being said, there would be pots and pants being thrown. Mm -hmm. Like the level of intensity would be completely different. So that show was educational for me because it was the first time that I really could see this is an actual culture. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up this way. People, my friends who are white, um, sometimes say that I'm so blunt. I used to think that that was because I was I'm an eight, but I mean that's partly because. But it's really cultural. Mm-hmm. Most white people aren't used to being told what's what, you know, straight up from most people that they encounter. Like I notice when some white people get into certain other subcultures, they start to pick up on that subculture's way of relating which is definitely not that um like i know like a lot of white dudes that end up in hip-hop subcultures who become much more blunt and straight uh, straightforward because they're a lot around a lot of non-white people in that subculture so i've come to understand that this is a big cultural difference it's a huge difference in just how much negativity or upfront potential conflict a person is used to dealing with and that's all it is how what did you grow up with and what do you what's your range of what you're comfortable with and i think most white people just didn't grow up in an environment way where they were told what people thought yeah i um so i married an italian woman (laughs) (laughs) and i mean in italy it's you know it's it's much more straight it's it's not uh confrontational i would say but it's just it's more straightforward. And so, you know, one of, uh, one of the like ways I tease Alaria, she says something to me and I just go, Oh, you know, like, (laughs) like I've been wounded, but in Italian accent and, and, you know, Italians are always sort of like fighting with each other, but it's, it's not like the drama is real, but it's, uh, 
not threatening. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I used to like when we started <laughs> fighting, I thought there was like a real problem. And now Alara will just be like, "Oh, what did you be?" And I'm like, "Oh, did you be?" You know, and it's just, it's just how you know. It's it's I I've learned a lot and become much more straightforward from it. But I I agree that American white people, I mean, even and British, I'd say, yeah, yeah, Irish are pretty much are much more straight up. But uh, but British and Americans have a thing, and having been become more interested in class and you know socialist politics and the the viewpoint the view, the lens of class I, I i'm not i don't it's not clear to me but i do feel like that there is something in the mix there of our history of class and race that this kind of indirectness and not being straightforward became normalized and i don't know exactly what it is but like like in america it's very uh rude to talk about how much money you make and part of what that does is it keeps people from knowing how much their coworkers are making and therefore you know creating solidarity to actually renegotiate their salary with their boss so that it's considered either like uh, a mark on somebody's worth when it's really a matter of how much the boss is exploiting somebody or not you know i have some thoughts on that um because this is i've had some late nights thinking about this like how this is a culture. So how does this, how does this culture develop and how does it just become the thing? And one thing that I realized or having these conversations with my friend, my Irish friend, he said, what she realized is that most people who have had to deal with straight talk is because they, they didn't have the luxury of not dealing with reality mm. because they were coming from a place where they were put in a less than position at some point, which if you're, for example, if you're black in America, at some point, a parent of yours or someone elder of yours is going to have to sit you down and and tell you that you might experience some unsavory things with police or or whatever. Like there's going to be some straight talk because if you're uh, uh, a person of color, you don't have the luxury to be in denial of what's going on because that's just what you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, that makes a lot of fucking sense. So culturally, basically, like you talk about (laughs) Irish people versus uh, British people, Irish people were conquered (laughs) at some point. (laughs) They they were systematically starved. Yes. So you you hang out with Irish people. They're hilarious. They're fun. um, And... And they have a set, they have a, like a, an interesting sense of humor and they can talk shit about themselves. People are constantly shitting on their, themselves because when you've been put in a situation where you are at the bottom, you develop culture and sense of humor and you, an honesty, self-honesty about where you are because you don't have any choice. Whereas when you are in a position where you're subjugating other people, you're invested in not being real about what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes so much goddamn sense. Like if yeah, yeah if you're if you're a boss, like <clears throat> you know, you're not supposed to bring up how they're exploiting people or how their life or values are actually hurting people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no straight talk allowed. Right. So I've noticed that especially with a lot of the um stuff that's going on in America with uh, white men that are angry about uh, not feeling like, um, I don't know, society gave them what they were somehow unconsciously believed that they deserved based on how much society tells you or white people that they're on top. And so some people feel frustration about that. And a part of that is just 
in that culture anyway, no one is telling you straight up that what you think is going on isn't actually going on. Whereas if you're a person of color, there's not a whole lot of delusion here to tell you that you're better than you are. <laughs> actually, it's the opposite. People of color have to be realistic about and about what's going on. There's not the luxury of deluding yourself. Whereas if you are of the dominant culture, then there's a lot of self-delusion. There's a, lot, there's a propaganda that's that's specifically there to make you feel better about your position, whether or not that's true or not. And so I that's a big reason why I think a lot of white people don't experience straight talk is because the culture inherently is built on not being real about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's what trips people up, white people up when uh, this kind of conversation comes up is is a lot of white people be like, well, I wasn't as privileged or, you know, like I struggled mm. or was poor or something like that and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, yeah, but it's still in the culture. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. It's still in the culture. And, you know, the word privilege is kind of getting old for people now, like yeah. t- like having think pieces on privilege. But, you know, uh, it's always important to remember that privilege is not that your life went really well or supposed to go well, but that, you know, like your you being the person you are based on race and gender and sexuality was not a detriment to what it was not an addition to all the suffering you're already experiencing. Uh At the end of the day, there's a lot of um, white American culture is invested in sort of a passive delusion. It's built into the culture here and people are avoiding real conversations about things. Even if you want to talk about racism, you, you notice how people don't necessarily want to talk about that because it's, Mm-hmm. it's an objectively negative thing and it actually happened so there's a way that you want to sweep that under the rug let's let's not talk about this terrible thing that happened um or how that might be foundational to the the fabric of the country that we live in or you know not even just not even like black people just but native americans and all these terrible things that have taken place let's not have a real conversation about that whereas if you're on the other side if you're of a culture who was at some point subjugated, you have, you never had the luxury to not talk about what was really happening. Like you mm. had to, to be real about your shitty situation. <laughs> mm. So I feel like that's a major aspect of, um, so I, don't, I wonder if in other countries they have the same sort of ent- uh, or positivity bias because it's really noticeable to me here. Like, just in just dealing with people online in Enneagram forums, it's it's incredible to me that 90% of the people don't want to have any real conversations or any negative toned conversations about the types. Yeah, well, I think in addition to that, you know, uh, Americans come from a background of people that were like going to make it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like in Europe, like in, in Ilaria, you know, in Rome, it's fascinating to me how. I will notice that we're able to uh, like move between social classes in the United States pretty fluidly. Like I don't make much money, but somehow I'm like at a place with a lot of wealthy people or something very exclusive. And then I'm with, you know, another place, not like that on the opposite end of the spectrum. Meanwhile, in Italy, it's like the classes don't interact as much. Like it's, it's like, cause the money has been in their families for generations. Mm. Uh, cause there wasn't that like, all right, at least some of us are going to, uh, you know, start a new thing in a new place and kind of figure shit out. It's like, it's been like resources have been distributed. 
different families and classes in the way they've been distributed for like centuries in a lot of cases. Mm. But also, so there's there's that kind of immigrant quality of like we're gonna we're gonna start some shit here. But also something I've been thinking a lot about and not sure how to like I, I don't have a clear vision about it yet. But how much personality is in in one sense, um, you know, personality is a mechanism for taking care of our instinctual resources, and, and that extends to the role of personality as uh, something that secures our social class and. Like an example of that, that uh, kind of was like so obvious, but also kind of blew my mind was, um, I remember I went to a conservative Catholic, very competitive private high school. And I remember there were just so many kids whose whole personality was about getting good grades and looking good on a college application. And, you know, years later, I can look them up online or see them and how fucking boring they are and how they like they did it right but there's like nothing else in them and that's because their whole personality was just about getting good grades which means maintaining social class and self-preservation job yeah yeah you know you could argue what what's a stronger pull but yeah Mm -hmm. self-preservation job and money and the like the the way that's tied in with social class yeah it blows my mind how much of people is just that yeah and when you add in the kind of social class view of like if you want to live a happy healthy life you should work harder to get a better job so that it pays more. like there's this classism of you know you should be able to get a better job but yet we need all the jobs and then as emic is speaking to like denying the reality of like the way the fucking world is because then you'd have to like you have to question like why there are billionaires and you know why people have why things are distributed the way they are and that's that's really uncomfortable everybody <laughs> super uncomfortable john, but you, real john do you remember that book that i i think i recommended to you called class i don't i don't i never picked it up okay um it's an interesting book because class isn't something that people talk about in the US, but is very apparent everywhere else, especially like in Europe. Like you like you talked about how resources get consolidated with certain families. And um, here, what's really cool as an immigrant is that there's a there's the air that anyone, anyone can come here and you can take your family to wealth and fame and fortune. But what it's what it does, that sort of American Wait, that's not true. like this american propaganda is sort of hiding the fact that we do have a class system here definitely and that's another aspect of i feel like as as an outsider looking in that there is what they tell you about america and then there's what is really happening and it feels like people here are invested in the fucking american dream whereas everyone who is actually trying to make it on the bottom recognizes that this shit isn't real. <laughs> it's, it's the not. American dream is fake. It's not yeah, real. And, and part of the reticence that like uh, politicians and, and just, and then donors and all that, those kind of people have a, they have a hard time acknowledging that because then it means that their success isn't justified. Yes. Uh, and it doesn't mean they're as a good or effective person as they think they are. And mm-hmm. that it's not like a, a not character that makes them successful. And in fact, if things are the way that they actually are, meaning classes about stratification and exploitation in a lot of cases, uh, then they have to own 
But in fact, they're not as good as they thought they were or effective people or better people, but that actually they're just, in some cases, unconscious assholes. Yeah. Or they were just lucky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I like so one thing that I noticed with a lot of successful people. Sometimes you'll see successful people who continue to harp about, "I work so hard," and just you know, just hard work. How did you get here? Hard work, and I mean, make no mistake, you do have to work hard. But there are a bunch of people working their tails off who would never even get close to yeah. even yeah. a fraction of what they achieved. So it's what they're doing is they're saying that because on some level they understand that you got lucky. I mean, you have to work hard to give yourself the opportunity, but hard work doesn't mean a goddamn thing in terms of whether or not you're going to become massively successful. It's a, it's also the crossover between being a morally slash ethically good person, a good person, and hard work, and just all of those things, you know, how they, those overlap in people's minds. And so then you're deserving you're supposed to be deserving of something because of that and so on does that make sense yes yeah yeah i mean <laughs> what kind of a mega successful person would be able to say yeah i mean i i work hard just like every fighter and i got a lucky break so yay luck <laughs> <laughs> that's not they're not going to say that because like you have to pat yourself on the back on some level mm -hmm. um but yeah culturally it feels like Everything here is meant to progress to a better place. This is what America is supposed to. This is what, how things work in America. You get here, you start at level one, you go to level two. If you're not at level three, what are you doing? You need to work harder. It just, that's the pervading sense. I don't know if that, that exists well, anywhere else. Yeah, like, you know how, like, so, like, with, with Sanders wanting to, like, forgive student loans or whatever, and then people, like, Oh, well, it's not fair to people who work their ass off to pay off the student loans. Like, <laughs> it makes no yeah. fucking sense. But it's like, it's sort of like, uh, you know, if a lot of the metrics by which Americans measure success were to go away because of different policies of ways we distribute money or resources or whatever, if they were to change, then it'd be like, how do I know then I'm a good or worthwhile person? Like, if the, mm -hmm. you know, if the levels game was taken mm -hmm. away. What would I? What would I have to pursue or achieve? You know, there's a little bit of that outrage of like, mm -hmm. how would I know I'm good or mm. whatever it is? Yeah, because I feel like uh, being a good person is kind of tied, like weirdly intertwined into being a successful, mm. uh, like a stereotypically successful human. Like yeah. they're like, oh, well, if you are a good person, eventually you'll catch a break. It's like that's not always true, and so kind of stripping away that like belief system of if you're good and you do the right thing you will eventually catch a break it freaks people out because then that means not everyone's going to catch a break and you might just be poor forever and you might end up homeless mm -hmm. yeah that's that's real talk <laughs> and, and, and it, negative and it comes back to this whole thing i think when you look at people's uh, it's sort of an american drive for self-help and how people look at the enneagram as a self-help modality so this Enneagram is supposed to help me improve and become a better person. And being a better person has to be positive, right? It has to make me more successful, right? We, yes. all, we all know the, uh, the cultural archetype of the most good and successful small business owner, which was <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and as Jesus became better and better, 
he became he opened more franchises and <laughs> hired more employees and built, built more houses built more houses and you know that's <laughs> the model the, the, the gospel yeah. ever expanding prosperity <laughs> gospel yeah <laughs> getting back to the tyranny of positivity i feel like that's that's a good background of where all that is coming from i think most americans most most white americans um, their approach to the Enneagram is that this, this is supposed to make me better and health is going to put me in a more positive place. And so there's a, a way that they want to delete and make for into being a positive type or at least a type that has balance. Because why would you be negative? How is negativity going to help me live my best life? It might also tie into, you know, the maybe this is a white culture thing also is the intellect is master you know mm. and, and so if i read about myself if i read about my type and i have a mental understanding of it then that's at least roughly equivalent or maybe 50 percent of the actual change mm. <laughs> what that good point i mean good that point. makes no sense and makes perfect sense yeah right that's, that's like, absolutely the logic what think. yeah that's what people think and yeah, yeah, yeah. totally mm-hmm. that's crazy yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely how people treat it they read it, one oh, totally. description and they're like i've got it <laughs> no i've seen people post that i've i've been reading this stuff and now i know about it and so i'm not going to do it anymore just oh my god oh, yeah, no, no, no totally yeah it's like yeah. I, I yeah and i the first impression i have based on my first reading is like forever that's my sense of the enneagram right mm-hmm. and this applies to everything with enneagram is just you know yeah it's so true well it's it's like that it's like that um i think it's like a bell curve chart or whatever but upside down like you start out at i know nothing and then you go to i know everything and then you go to i really know nothing yeah. And then you mm. start realizing what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, which is so much more useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So you got to get past yep. that first hump. It seems like here there's a, a very polite veneer on how fucked up things are. People are shocked when the shadow gets brought up. Like there are a lot of people that were shocked at what happened with the last election. Whereas mm-hmm. the, the shadow, people don't have the luxury of ignoring the shadow in mm-hmm. in most places in the world. And so I feel like that's culturally what's going on here is that um people are highly invested in not looking at any of the dark stuff or any of the the negative realities of what life is like here in reality and that's how people approach the enneagram it's like not confronting the real shit about what's going on about their types and so that's why four can't be what it is (laughs) four can't be loss and emptiness because that's so anti-american Right. Mm-hmm. Another yeah. another fucking example of this is like uh, I went to Paris uh, last winter. <laughs> They're still doing the yellow vest protests against, I guess, austerity and Macron, mm-hmm. and they are fucking shit up. And uh, one of the interesting things about the United States is that we love nonviolent protests, which I'm all for. But we think nonviolence means non-destructive. And like sometimes in a protest, you got to destroy property when it becomes any kind of property is threatened, people call it a riot. That's like a thing here where it's like, oh, well, that's that's out of bounds. That's impolite. It, it sort of neuters any kind of effect that those kinds of, you know, whether we're talking in, inside ourselves of being able to really contend with our own shadow or we're talking externally in terms of uh, a, a certain kind of effective confrontation with the forces that we're actually dealing with. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting that this step is going on with the t- the two types that represent the shadow, and it seems to me that in order for people to be confronted with what four and and five to a degree actually is, that they have to be provoked. Like it is a pr- provocation to actually see four for what it is, because that means that you have to admit that there is a shadow, that there is a type that's organized about bringing that to the surface. And so for people to actually see four accurately, they themselves would have to be a little freaked out that this is a reality that I'm completely ignoring. I don't even want to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the balance there needs to be, that's my compulsion is to, as a nine, (laughs) is to bring the balance, uh, which is in this case, to really press people's noses into the ugly of yes. four and five, right? I mean, just yeah. really, there's literally these memes of people, I've got my pumpkin pie spice and my yes, whatever, and, and I'm a four. Coffee. Pumpkin pie Dog. spice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, wow. one One more time. David just said pumpkin pie spice. Yeah. Instead of pumpkin spice. No, yeah, I don't know what the spice is. Might have just aged yourself. Yeah. It was cute. It was endearing. <laughs> there was a, a four and a half hour video on David Lynch, uh, mm. the Twin, Twin Peaks, which was a, a good demonstration of a sort of a nine perspective. Mm-hmm. And basically, to sum up that whole four and a half hour video that I actually watched, <laughs> his <clears throat> the whole show, the whole point of Twin Peaks is that it's a meta criticism of television. And he's trying to point out that television is unbalanced, mm. that that it shows violence without the depth of feeling that comes with hmm. understanding the impact of what like a murder would do to a town. And so what Twin Peaks hmm. is supposed to do is to slow things down so that you can actually feel the impact of violence. And then because most TV shows just kind of hit you with the violence and then moves on to resolve who done it so that you can forget about it and move on or point so, at the bad person. And then that's it. Yeah. yeah. So it's like to actually come face to face with evil, with darkness. Uh, so you see a lot of that show or even, you know, just David Lynch in general is that he wants to dig, put your face in, in the shit that sucks, but also soothe you with some positive dreamlike, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, to ease so it's want to restore a balance to television and that twin peaks was the antidote to getting us to slow down to not look for a resolution to the mystery to actually care about this laura palmer so it's interesting that you say that that mm, yeah. you know to, to restore balance because i mean right now we're heavily tilted to at least the enneagram world is heavily tilted towards just making these types into a positive thing so people are like why are you being so negative you know why are you because that's what's necessary this is a perspective that is unacknowledged and being swept away and swept under the rug and people need to actually know that four and five are not positive types and we actually need that perspective yeah it's not that four and five are like as types that interesting or special or better or whatever they're just like any fucking other type but there is like a a lack of the view or understanding or incorporation of what it represents archetypally and i and you know i mean we're in we're in late fall now going into uh thanksgiving and you know christmas and i find so interesting is other countries have this but 
uh, like that celebrate Christmas, but like American Christmas is like, first of all, it's just a celebration of capitalism. It's all about lights and happiness and excitement. And it's, it's like, we bring that even into uh, the holiday that in other countries, I mean, even in Italy, it's still got a little bit of a kind of a solemn darkness to it. It's got like a reflectiveness and, Mm. um, that's interesting. And uh, is it Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement in Judaism? Or was that I think so. Jewish tradition has this Day of Atonement, and, ref- and it begins fall. And it's like, it's this day of, of, of making room for, it's not just, oh, I need to redeem myself, which again has that archetype of getting better. But it's that, that day of being with and steeping in and reflecting on um, and introspecting on where one is at, you know and uh, uh, owning the different fragments of oneself. And we try so hard in this country to uh, also make it a light thing, make it a positive thing. Can't get enough Christmas lights. Yeah, that fucking music. (laughs) (laughs) I would gladly put my Christmas lights up all year round if Brian would let me. See how you are? You're You're the problem. (laughs) I am. I am. I love me some Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I like New Year's Eve the best i had a great appreciation for it i didn't really care about new year's eve before until i started working at this bar and i started to see i didn't know that new year's eve was such a big deal for a lot of people that they would dress up uh, come all the way out from the suburbs and buy tickets to this mm-hmm. new year's eve event at this bar that i was working at and people would pay like 50 bucks and everyone would be decked out and my favorite part of new year's eve is you know of course before the countdown at a place like that the balloons come down and that music, the really nostalgic music starts playing and couples start kissing. And the most tragic thing are the people who aren't coupled up. And even for the people who are coupled up, it's like the weight of the entire year for that one minute, people have started to consider their life and how disappointing (laughs) that year might've been. And collective (laughs) sadness is so thick. Just in, and especially, it's a little bit more tragic if, you know, like there's a girl by herself and she's not like making out with anybody. (laughs) And like there's (laughs) nothing more tragic than that, I don't know, five minutes. Emeka will help out. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why New Year's Eve has become my favorite holiday. It's just like I've never felt people are just collectively forced like the delusions drop for just a few minutes like there's a condensed five minutes yes where (laughs) you are you are faced with the suck and maybe you're trying to drown it in alcohol or some new you know pussy or dick or whatever it is that you got to do to to counteract (laughs) this feeling uh but i love that i love that you know for for just a few minutes people are confronted with the emptiness of existence. The void. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. We do, like, we have a pretty good uh, Halloween, you know, yeah. like, other countries don't do that, and it's like, I'm, when I was at, what is it, preschool substitute, we're reading little kids, like, three-year-old kids and four-year-old kids about, like, skeletons and all this stuff, and, like, really pretty <laughs> fucked up shit, and they were, like, loving it, and I was like, yeah, this is great, you know, like... <laughs> Like there's a there's a place for that. So like we have a something of it, but it's not very inward. Yeah. It's a character flaw that they are blind to in themselves and the characters they create. The heroes and protagonists of the literature and films reek of the same oversight. An 
uncharacteristic value that if they saw it would instantly deepen and broaden their perspective. <laughs> and blind side of privilege and power. The intelligence that could be weeded out by the type of comfort one would choose to prolong or protect. An heirloom. I watched shitty movie after shitty movie thinking how could I not see this until it dawned. This was the floor they worshipped.